chapter 4. As I noted in Sunday school, I thought it would be appropriate to continue to remain here in Colossians chapter 4 because I like this idea of standing and standing for the truth. And this is certainly something that our dear friend, Pastor Epaphras, is concerned about. We will continue to delve into the heart of this amazing pastor, a, um, a, a friend of ours, one whom we are becoming more familiar with, and uh, a character in the Bible that I think is often overlooked but needs more attention um, because he was certainly faithful. And because of his faithfulness, because of his concern, you have before you today this amazing epistle. That is remarkable. Because a man traveled 1,000 miles, over 1,000 miles to Rome, you have this epistle. Isn't God good? I mean, it's really just striking. I, I, I was laying in bed thinking about that the other night, and I just, it's just a marvelous thought that because of a pastor's concern for the truth and his flock, he would travel so far, risking life and limb, great peril, to make a journey of that length at that time in history was quite remarkable. And I, uh, I, I really am looking forward to the time in the future, Lord willing, to be able to spend time there with him and talk to him in glory and get more details about his life and his ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's read. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time today. Thank you for this time of celebration. You give us these seasons. There is a time for rejoicing, as we are reminded in Ecclesiastes, a time to lift up our voices, to reflect on what you've done, to, to smile, to be happy, to have a glad heart, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints here at Community Bible Church, and to revel in the wonder of what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your good providence. Thank you for the truth that you have preserved through the ages, through the faithful ministry of men like Epaphras and Luther and others who have gone before us, men who were convicted through the work of the Holy Spirit, whom you saved and who you then used in a mighty way for our good and for our benefit. Let us not forget the old ways, the sacred moorings that you have established in history for us to ponder and to consider. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the truths related to the gospel that are so important, the principles of the finished work of Christ, the wonders of your grace, the authority of the word of God, salvation by faith, and your glory. May we never forget them. May we always be good students of the word and cause us to stand, to stand for the truth in the evil and dark day in which we live. And may the light shine forth into the darkness. May we be salt and light as we proclaim the truth and stand on the authority of your word. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 4. Um, let's go back and just pick up where Paul here at the conclusion of this epistle is uh, concluding by giving salutations and greetings from a variety of people. Um, a number of people here that we've been looking at, 
Verse 7, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant, and the Lord will bring you information. We know that Tychicus and Onesimus were the couriers of this epistle, along with a letter to the Laodicean church, um, also likely to, a church, to the church in Ephesus and perhaps even Philippi. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, Remember, Onesimus was the escaped slave of Philemon and had stolen from him and fled, and by God's providence ended up with Paul, who witnessed to him and God saved, and now he brings back this letter, another absolutely mind-boggling story. And with, Ones and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. He was the successor pastor. He took Epaphras' place. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, what I wanted to look at today was this principle of standing and what is, what is, what is the meaning of this? What is the idea behind Epaphras' purposeful prayer? here. And, and this is quite remarkable. We find then that Epaphras, based upon what we know of him, was indeed a good student of God's Word and that he was very concerned about teaching those who are in Colossae and proclaiming to them the gospel. And he did a very good job of it because Paul notes in chapter 1 that these folks in Colossae were people of faith and hope and love, and they had been grounded in the truth and in the, in the wonders of God's grace and truth. And so Epaphras had fulfilled his call to be a good shepherd of the flock, to lead, to guard, to guide, to feed, to protect, and to proclaim to them God's word. They were well grounded, but a false teacher arose within the church. And, and context is so important, so we cannot forget that when Epaphras is praying for them in the way that he is, in his mind, of course, is the concern that he would have about the impact and the influence of this false teacher. That only stands to reason. A person would not travel that far and not then be concerned in his prayers about folks who are being subjected to that false teacher's teachings. And Paul goes to great lengths in this epistle 
in particular chapter 2, to unpackage what it is he's teaching and to confront it, condemn it, and to push the Colossians back into Christ. This epistle is about union with Christ. It's about who we are in Jesus Christ, how we have been saved and reconciled and fitted for meaningful service, and then how we live that out in real time in our homes, in our work, even as a slave, remarkably, as we know from chapter 3. And so Epaphras is concerned about people losing sight of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so he then challenges them to not fall into the trap of the false teacher and buy into a works-based form of righteousness, which is exactly what the false teacher was doing. It was a hodgepodge of mysticism, philosophy, man-based philosophy, a, a bizarre form of elevated temple worship, the worship of angels engaging in excited utterances, uh, revelation through other means other than God's Word, and also works. And going back to a ritualistic form of, of, of belief, which the Colossians had been saved from. And so don't forget that. That's very important. There are some who, I think, as with chapter 3, diminish the punch of the meaning of a verse like this by just making it a category that says that Epaphras was concerned about their morality. He wanted them to be, you know, sexually pure and, and ethical and moral people. And that may have been part of it, but I, that, that removes the urgency of the prayer because verse 13 tells me that Epaphras was praying for them in such a way that it was tantamount to, to strenuous toil, the hard work, painful toil. Epaphras can't be there with them. And so he's, he's not able to preach, he's not able to, to be with them and to protect them in that way, so he's, he's engaged in this painful toil of praying in such an earnest way that it, it's referred to as labor. That's significant. We can't lose sight of that. And so he's, he's praying for something very specifically. Now, his prayer is, is an urgent call even to the church today. It's it, the idea of standing, of course, is a principle that we find in the Reformation. We know many of the men who were in the Reformation who stood for the truth. We talked about Luther this morning at the Diet of Worms, and he, there at the peril of his own life, stood for the authority of God's Word over the ramblings and babblings of the Pope. We know that John Knox would stand in England we know that Calvin would stand in Geneva along with his friend Beza and Melanchthon. We know that before them, John Hus stood. We know that John Zwingli stood. And that these men stood on the authority of the content of God's word, and they challenged the people to do that in the face of grievous error. What was the error? It's very similar to what the church in Colossae is facing. It's the same old lie. Satan's playbook is worn and torn. It's tattered because he's used it all the time, and unfortunately, it works a lot. We ought to know that. And so here, here, here like in the Reformation, we have this issue of standing against those who then take us out of God's Word, okay? We need to be concerned about that. 
We need to be concerned about people who come along and don't use the authority of Scripture when making the proclamation from the pulpit, but engage in a lot of nonsensical ramblings and, and, and theatrics. I was sent a video clip of a church service that occurred here in Alliance last week. I, it, was just, it, was mind, it was difficult to watch, but also very sad as it stood in stark contrast to what we find a pastor is called to do in Colossians chapter 4. To equip his people to understand the word of God so they can stand, so they know the truth and can proclaim the truth and identify error when it occurs. D.G. Hart wrote a book called Why the Reformation Matters, Still Protesting. And he talks about the ideas of why the issues of the Reformation are important. Now, the book is intended to address a current phenomena that's taking place in evangelicalism, which is the large number of Protestant evangelicals who are going to the Catholic Church, who are becoming Roman Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church is actually growing in the context of, of new attendees. I'm not going to call them necessarily converts, but people who are going in, in terms of, of appreciating what they're teaching or liking what they're teaching. And so in the preface of the book, he talks about this, and he talks about the, the reasons that are behind it. And he also reminds us of this fact. Whatever readers may make of current trends among Roman Catholics and Protestants, the debates that divided the two sides of Western Christianity still matter. At least that is the contention of this book. If someone cares about the holiness of God, the demands of his law, human sinfulness, and the reality of eternal punishment for disobeying him, the teachings that Protestants and Roman Catholics give to those questions are among the weightiest matters of human existence. Because Protestants at the Reformation argued that Rome's teachings on salvation was leading people astray, good reasons exist for opposing Roman Catholicism still. Still. He goes on to lament those types of issues and confronts them in the book. He attempts to confront it in a way that draws people back to the authority of God's word and the principles that were so evident and, and, and important in the Reformation. He would note as follows, as plausible and as well intended as are some of the reasons that many former Protestants have given lately for joining the Roman Catholic Church, they are not sufficient to overcome the enormous problems in Roman Catholicism that the Reformation exposed. He laments that mainline Protestantism, once a formidable presence in American life, is a shell of its former self and is increasingly absorbed with an egalitarian understanding of Christianity that welcomes diversity in all forms except for those believers who insist the church should not turn a blind eye to personal sin or doctrinal error. Although they still affirm Christianity's supernatural character, evangelical Protestants represent a smorgasbord of doctrinal emphasis, worship styles, and ecclesiastical and parachurch ministries that nurtures incoherence as much as it relies on earnestness. He then goes on to talk about the idea that we need to recapture the principles that were part and parcel of the Reformation. He notes the status of human beings before a holy and righteous God and the message of the gospel is explained by the reformers remain the same. 
Indeed, the great truths of the Protestant Reformation are still as poignant and compelling as they were in the 16th century. Truth is, after all, supposed to be timeless. And I think that's well said. And I think it's something that needs to be noted in regards to the things that are going on with regard to evangelicalism in the church today. He notes that it was the genius of the Reformation to tell sinners that their only hope for a perfect sinless life was to trust in Christ and by faith receive their Savior's perfect righteousness as their own. Only on that basis could a sinner bear to stand before a holy and righteous God on judgment day. And what's interesting, what, what Mr. Hart is doing here too is that he's, he's confronting as Evan does in his book, Karmic Christianity, the idea of this manipulation of God by our behavior. If I do A, God must do B. That it's all about karma. Things are happening to me because I must be doing something bad, and so God is going to get me for that. And so our whole relationship with him is based upon this tit-for-tat theology that has infiltrated the church and indeed is part and parcel of Roman Catholicism. This is what happens when you abandon sola fide, when you take your eyes off of Christ, when you abandon the authority of Scripture, and when you deny God his glory alone. Recent polling indicates that the church is in a very difficult state right now. In September of 2022, Ligonier sponsored a study that they entitled The State of Theology. This survey was designed to tease out what Americans believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible. So Ligonier, along with Lifeway Research, partnered together to find out the answers to some of those questions. And what's striking about it is the fact that, in many respects, on some of the very key orthodoxy questions, Christians basically answer the questions the same way that the unsaved do, that their answers really aren't very different. One of the questions was, does God change? The statement was this, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. And they're asked to basically say true or false to that, and 51% of unregenerate Americans said that they agree to that. Shockingly, 48% of evangelicals said they agree with that. That's a problem, because God does not change. If he does change, he's not God. And of course, this is the, a result of the idea of open theism and that God learns and adapts and that he can be surprised and that he has to learn and change the way he thinks about things because of what we do. It's shocking, but that's what we're, where we're at. And so the truth does matter, and this is what happens when you abandon the authority of God's word, when you abandon what it says about God and who he is and who we are, which was the next question, are we born innocent? Well, 71% of unregenerate Americans agreed with that statement. 65% of evangelicals did. 65%. These are people who, when asked, and the question was framed in such a way to tease out their understanding of the gospel, that they would identify in the context of that question that they are Christians who would adhere to the authority of God's word and the understanding of salvation and things of that nature, that they would answer that way. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, true or false. 65% of U.S. evangelicals said true. 
that denies the doctrine of total depravity. It denies what happened in the garden. It denies Adam's federal headship over all mankind, that in Adam we all stand condemned. These, of course, were principles that were taught and and encouraged and defended in the Reformation. It goes on to confront other issues such as some cultural issues regarding gender gender identity and homosexuality. And again, there's slippage in the church on those issues. Their answers corresponded basically with those of the unregenerate. Um, Gender is a matter of choice. Gender identity is a matter of choice. And sadly, uh, we're finding that many within evangelical circles are saying that that is true. Shocking. Shocking. So, those are the trends. And so the principles of God's Word are under attack, and they're being abandoned. And so Epaphras is concerned about those types of things, and we should be too. The false teacher had come in. As I noted, he was teaching a lot of nonsense, a lot of works-based righteousness. And here Epaphras challenges them through this testimony that Paul gives about him. I think it's kind of remarkable how we get this information. I would submit to you that Paul is a reliable witness. Would you not agree with me? I mean, I like reliable witnesses. They are far and few between, trust me, when I tell you. You just never quite know what a person's going to say on the witness stand. You know, you put them up there and you prep them and, you're link, and they're testifying. And you're thinking, where did that come from? Oh. What, now what do I do? Your Honor, may I treat them as a hostile witness? Well, he's your witness, Mr. Tucker. Well, I'm sorry, but he ain't saying what he's supposed to. <laughs> well, Paul's, Paul is indeed a reliable witness. It's amazing to me that it's Paul telling us this. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is communicating this about this pastor, Epaphras. And so let's unpackage the meaning and significance of what it is that he is doing here. So as we look at this passage in verse 12, we understand then that he's laboring earnestly. We talked about that last week in his prayers because he can't be with them in person. And the purpose of the prayer is significant. It's that they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So the words that are used here are significant. The, the word stand has a notion of a resolute faith. Now, I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to the meaning of the words, okay? We understand that Paul is communicating the content of what Epaphras' prayers are like. He's hearing him pray. This is amazing, too. That Paul and Epaphras praying, what a picture that is. And, and so he, he's hearing the content. And so he's speaking directly of what he knows and what he has heard. And, and he is reflecting on that in this greeting and salutation and exhortation. So the idea that, that Paul uses the word here, stand, which means it's, it carries with it the idea of a resolute faith. Which, which is firm, is, convict, is, is, is one of conviction based upon truth. It's able to withstand attack. It's a prepared faith, 
a prepared faith. I like that. It's prepared. We've prepared for things, right? I prepared for this sermon today. I mean, we spent five minutes on it. You prepare for things, whether it's, you know, working in the yard or getting ready for work or making a presentation or doing something. So it's the idea of a, 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 a advocacy, a conviction that is prepared, which is so good. And so in the context of that meaning, then he wants them to be prepared in a perfect way in the idea of, of, of standing in a conviction that has attained to its appointed purpose or end. It's, it's complete. It's not, a, it's not a shallow faith. It's not a shallow standing. It's a, it's a standing that has been perfected in its totality and completeness. That would be necessary in order to challenge this false teacher. If, you're, if we go back and we look, Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 4, that this, this guy's kind of clever. Chapter 2, verse 4 tells me this, I say this so that no one will, be, no one will delude you with persuasive argument. This guy, this guy was persuasive. Apparently, some of those at the church in Colossae had fallen into the error and were believing what he was saying. So much so that in, cha- in chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says this, These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The false teacher's ability to persuade was such that Paul had to, be, had to say to them, well, it may sound clever, it may be catchy, it may be, it may be something that is appealing in some context, but it's of no value to you spiritually. Epaphras, concerned about that, is praying that God keeps them, that he causes them to stand perfectly in a complete way, understanding and grasping the gospel that brought them into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Back in chapter 1, we're reminded that Epaphras had taught them that well. Go back to chapter 1 just by way of reminder so we don't lose the context of the story, which is so amazing. There's so many dimensions to this epistle. But back in chapter 1, verse 6, he, he notes that... Um, that in verse 6, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay? Epaphras is concerned about them losing that dynamic, that conviction. So he prays that they would stand perfect. And so we see this prayer focuses on people who are grounded in the authority, finality, totality, Efficacy of God's word. The truth. The truth about what? What is the truth? You can't handle the truth. The truth is who we are. 
right? Ah, this is so good. So Paul, in chapter 1, reminds them who they are. You're in the kingdom of darkness. God saves you and he brings you into the kingdom of light. You were alienated and hostile in your mind towards God, but he changed you and transformed you and made you new creation in Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled. You've been made complete in him. Your, your sins have been nailed to the cross. The law no longer stands condemning you, but you are in Christ and complete in Christ, and you can rest in his finished work. That's the truth in which they have been grounded and were settled. And Epaphras is praying, dear God, keep them in the, the truth. Cause them to stand perfect in the truth. I don't want them to be karmic Christians. I don't want them to be Roman Catholics. I don't want them to buy into the error of those things because it will rob them of their joy and peace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Keep them from that. Keep them from that. And so, we see that Paul is emphasizing the content of the prayer of Epaphras because it is important. It goes back to what Paul would say in Colossians 1.28 was the purpose of his ministry. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so Epaphras was praying that they would stand and that they would stand perfectly and also fully assured. And man, I love this. So Epaphras prays that in their perfect stand, they will be fully assured, which would necessarily be the result. It would be axiomatic that if you're perfectly standing in the faith, you're going to be fully assured because that type of faith is going to take your eyes off of yourself and place them fully on Jesus Christ. That's where our assurance comes from. People struggle with assurance because, well, they are karmic. They are thinking that they can manipulate God with a host of different formulas and, and, and things. Rather than just resting in the fact that Jesus has done it all and that as Christians we are called to suffer and just because of your suffering doesn't mean that you've got bad karma or you've done something wrong or bad. It's not that. And so he wants to make certain that they are Assured. I, the, the idea of assurance is so important. Paul would emphasize that in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's, there's nothing that can thwart God's purpose in that context. And here, the language that's used grammatically too is important. The passive voice used by Paul here emphasizes the idea of one who is fully convinced, assured, and certain of a fact. What is the fact? Just the facts, ma'am. Well, here's the fact. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus finished it all. Jesus keeps it all. Jesus will see it to the end. That's what he wanted them to be convinced of. 
And so the idea of assurance here is to, it's to be assured through the rich, gratifying insight into all spiritual matters, understanding which not only penetrates the mind, but also feeds the heart with satisfying conviction of the finished work of Christ. This is so important in light of the attack on the gospel that is happening by the false teacher in their church. This is so incredibly important for them to understand and to appreciate. And Epaphras knows that, and he's praying that way. Again, there are some commentators who have kind of diminished, I think, the power of this passage by just making it about their ethical behavior. But I, it's much more than that. Again, the context of the epistle forces me into a construct which recognizes the impact of the error of the false teacher and the danger that it poses. Epaphras does not want Colossae to become like so many evangelicals today, not able to articulate who God is, who is Jesus Christ, what he has done, who they are, and their need for a Savior. Again, I go back to this video clip that was sent to me last week, which demonstrated the problem that this poses now for the church, a number of children being paraded before the congregation, holding up placards about what Jesus has done for them. There must have been probably 25 or 30 young people at various ages. I only saw one sign that made any reference to salvation and sin. The rest of them were all the things that Jesus helps them do about getting over body dysphoria issues or not having friends or things of that nature. There's no assurance in that. We've marketed Jesus in such a way that we've robbed him of his prerogative. We've robbed him of his, main, of his purpose. And so Epaphras here emphasizes this issue of standing, the idea of standing perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? Well, certainly it speaks to our moral and ethical behavior, but the will of God also reaches into the idea of the purpose of salvation, does it not? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. There you see the will of God on full orb display, the counsel of the triune God in the halls of heaven, basically is what you see. Let's go back and look at Ephesians chapter 1. This beautiful passage, it's one of, the most, it's one of my favorites. Well, they're all my favorite, but this is super good too. Look at, chap, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. See this? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You've got to remember these things. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's what Epaphras wants them to remember. To stand in that, complete, assured of it. And knowing those things, they can confront the false teacher and stand in opposition and say, no, leave us. Leave us, wicked man. You're taking our eyes off of Christ. Get out of our church. Leave now. That's your job. And Epaphras is praying for them in such a way that it's toil, it's labor. He has an abiding disposition toward them in such a way that he is consumed, in essence, with their care this way. Deep concern. And so the context, again, drives me into this issue of better understanding what it is that Epaphras is concerned about. Epaphras' prayer is a clarion call to the church today, to all those who would be pastoring, those who would aspire to it and continue in it, to those who are the recipients of the efforts of the pastor, to be reminded of what it is the pastor is called to do and what your response is to the Word of God, to understand it, to comprehend it, so that you too can be assured and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is why so many people are abandoning Protestantism in the context of understanding of what that means from the Reformation, leaving these very principles which Epaphras was concerned about and actually buying into the very error that was being taught by the false teacher in Colossae. Diminishing the deity of Jesus Christ, not understanding who God is, not understanding their natural depravity, their total depravity through Adam. And as a consequence, what happens? We become Roman Catholics, we become karmic Christians, we become future salvationists, final justifiers. The idea that somehow my salvation right now is insecure, that I can't know that I'm saved right now, that somehow I have to get to a place in the future where that is somehow affirmed based upon what I've done. Well, my question is to you, how much does it take? There's no assurance in that. There's no hope in that. How do I rest? How do I lay my head on the pillow at night? How do I get through cancer? How do I get through fear and trepidation? How do I get through world turmoil and chaos? How do I deal with disobedient children, unsaved children, in the context of that type of paradigm? How much do I have to do? Luther came to the realization that he could not do enough. As hard as he tried, as, as rigorous as his, his practices were and his rituals were, even beating himself, he came to the realization through the word of God that he stood in Christ alone by faith alone. And it was nothing more. It could be nothing more. Because the harder he tried, it was not satisfying anything. It just made it worse. This is where so many Christians are today. 
It's so sad to see this. And Epaphras was concerned about it, and Paul testifies to the significance of what he's doing. And ultimately, what we find today is that the Reformation has been abandoned because we have abandoned the very things of which Paul is teaching us in Colossians, the distinction between the law and the gospel. That's ultimately what Colossians is about. Evan writes the following in his really good book that we're studying in men's theology class, Seeds and Stars. He has a heading called Law and Gospel or Lospel, L-A-W-S-P-E-L. It can also be called Glospel, where the gospel and the law are combined, where we add works to everything in order to have um, some additional affirmation that we then rest in, faithing in our faithfulness, rather than looking to Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Evan writes as follows, any initiative that promotes gospel activism in addition to or equal to the gospel announcement has confused law and gospel. No small mistake. To be fair, we all likely have done this to some degree in our immaturity. You know, what's remarkable to me is we've been working through karmic Christianity in the men's class, the number of guys coming to me and saying, man, I've been doing this. I'm finding myself here. I've done this. I've been living this way. Well, like Evan says, to be fair, we all likely have done this to some degree in our immaturity. If left unaddressed and unchanged, blending law and gospel will have eternal consequences. Unrepentant devotees to the gospel, a mixture of unbiblical new laws and God's law cloaked in gospely language, are promoting a false gospel that can never save. It only condemns. That's exactly what the false teacher is doing. This is why Paul says it's not effective to anything. It may sound clever. It may sound good. But it does nothing. It only condemns. He goes on and writes, So in Great Commission spirituality, as tempting as it is to talk passionately about living the gospel, kingdom building, partnering with God, incarnating Christ's love, or being radical, we must cautiously differentiate between precept and promise. If we do not, and if we merge law and gospel into an an imprecise and activistic gospel, we will lay unnecessary burdens upon not only ourselves, but upon those whom we are seeking to make into disciples. In confusing law and gospel in our spirituality and disciple-making, we are in danger of Jesus' warning to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. To be clear, the classic Reformation articulation of law and gospel essentially teaches that all the precepts, imperatives, and instructions of Scripture, not merely the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments, fall under the category of law, while all the promises of Scripture fall under the category of gospel. The gospel essentially means the good news, and news is always an account of an event in the past tense. News that is good, news that is good reports a past event that produces ongoing and even future blessings and benefits. The good news of the gospel indicates an accomplished event, not a potential future. Law is always potential the standard for earning and enjoying future blessing. Promised future blessings are grounded in the good news that Christ has fulfilled the law's demands for us. However, potential future blessings are conditioned upon our past, present, and future perfect obedience to the law. 
what God requires by precept, he gives by promise. God commands to love him and love others that should break us so that we would beg him for mercy. And then in his generous love, he credits to us the righteousness that he demands and the subsequent blessings as though we have always walked in righteous obedience. We are not infused with the righteousness of God. Christ came to fulfill the law so that through faith we are imputed with the righteousness from God that Christ earned for us. To be even clearer, God isn't waiting for us to grovel and seek him and meet him part way. He's not even waiting for us to go only one step toward him so that he would take 99 steps toward us. No, there is no climbing Jacob's ladder. We are dead in the grave. God in Christ comes down and pulls us out of the ground, breathes new life into us, transplants a new heart in us, gives us a transformation of Christ's pure blood, unplugs our ears and peels our eyes open so that in the face of Christ, we can see and hear him say, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, you who are so helpless, I will not only provide what is necessary for you to abound in life, righteousness, and its blessing, but I will provide the means by which you must receive it, faith alone. God gives us the food we need. He pries open our clenched fists and place in our hands faith alone, which with which we receive Christ. Through the gift of faith alone, God gives us Christ and all that he is for us and for all of life. The law says to do this and you shall live. The gospel says, I have done this so that you shall live. Those seeking sanctification by precepts say, all this we shall do. But those sanctified in the promise say, all this Christ has done. Let us rest under his yoke. It's believe and receive or try and die. There is no gospel middle way, no dialectical synthesis here. It's Jesus only or not at all. Man, that's good. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? There are so many Christians who are in the context of this that they are, are, are doing this very thing the opposite way. They're trying to work. They're trying to do more because pastors and pulpits keep telling them, try harder, do more, work harder, do this, do that. Telling them, you can't know until the end. I can say to you that you can know right now. And Epaphras wanted his dear saints in Colossae to understand that, to stand in that truth. That is the will of God. That is the will of God. To rest in that truth. And I hope that you are. And I hope that today, that you're seated here, resting not with your eyes closed, waiting for dinner, but resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and that the reality of what Epaphras is concerned about is real for you, that you are standing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Complete in him, knowing that he has paid it all, done it all, that you cannot add one more thing to it. It isn't that good news. That's the good news. The sins in the past, the sins in the present, and even your sins in the future are covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ, and no one can take that from you. Ever. 
You may say to me, well, John, you don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. You're right, I don't, but God does, and he's covered it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. You can stand in that. That is the will of God. That is the will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. May these truths become so ingrained in us that a thousand horses could not tear them out of us. Keep us. Preserve us. Help us to stand firmly convinced of the content of the promises that you've given us in Scripture, that Christ has indeed paid it all, that this was the counsel of your sovereign triune will, and that you saved for yourself a people who could rest forever in that, no matter what. Forgive us from wandering from that truth. May we reclaim it. May our voices be as clear and convicting as those who have gone before us. Give us a boldness Cause us to stand. Help us to stand in the face of wickedness and evil, to be messengers of the good news. Christ has paid it all. Christ has paid it all. We praise you for this magnificent truth in the name of our blessed Redeemer, who is risen and seated, making intercession for us and will continue to do that. We look forward to the day of our glorification. Preserve us in the meantime. Cause us to rest.